Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show. This time, Angus Lochran. Angus is the BT Sport football commentator, racing tipster. Probably first came to prominence for most of us as Stato on fantasy football, where he was the regular butt of jokes from Frank Skinner and David Baddiel. But I don't think it worked out too badly for him, did it? And Angus is here to mark our card and give a few little tips on how to become a sports journalist, a very difficult area to make a living in these days because so many people want to do it. There aren't a lot of places where you can actually make money doing it. So Angus is just going to give you a few little tips, a few little helpful hints based on his own personal experience. Angus, hello. Hi, Adrian. Nice to see you. And I hope, uh, uh, yeah, hope what we discussed that you find interesting. Well, how did it all start for you? Well, I was quite lucky because, uh, to be quite honest, I my dream as a young boy like many would be it was to be a sports commentator i predominantly like football and i still love football and i've been to probably as many football matches as anyone in the world and football commentary was what i wanted to get into but i also like the horse racing and the rugby and you know i basically liked all the sports but i got a big break when uh, i was having a bet as an underage punter in a betting shop something that uh, isn't is frowned upon now but the manager actually said, you should actually uh, go for this job. You'd be quite good at the commentating. So uh, I applied and I, did, I, 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 got, I got the job doing the, doing the commentary into the betting shops. Like, you can't imagine it now, but in those days, they didn't actually have any pictures. They weren't allowed to have any uh, pictures at all. So it was all sort of like, almost like radio commentary. So I got a break doing that, but... So this was in the 1980s? In the, in the 80s, yeah. The, the, who, who were you working for then? Who, well, who it, was, it was Ladbrokes uh, uh, betting shops, but it was quite... Where I was quite lucky was they were just, uh, they were just starting their voice network, and they had... Uh, uh, there were two chaps, one called Ian Bartlett, who's now a well-known uh, commentator on the racing circuit, and another chap called Errol Blythe, who works for Sky doing the Greyhounds. So they'd both done really well out of it. And basically, it was the three of us who were brought in but we were left a blank sheet of paper. So that was, a, that was a marvellous opportunity for me to try and find some contacts, go to sport and uh, see where we, where, we, where we land. I got that as a lucky break because I'd been on a broadcasting course, uh, which was run down in... It was the National Broadcasting School. It was run in uh, Greek Street in Soho. And that gave me a real feel for that it was the right profession that I'd like to do. It was good training. You had uh, eight weeks as a... Radio 2 course and sort of eight weeks as a Radio 4 course. But the, the week that you went on air uh, was played out to independent radio stations as well. So uh, a lot of good talent came out of that. And I met interesting people like people like Fiona Phillips, who's made a fantastic career. Giles Peterson, who's done well with jazz. And you know, Jonathan Pierce uh, ended up doing some work with uh, at Capital as well. So, so that was quite good. What I found w- uh, when I went to Labra... Uh, they were predominantly racing, but you, you could bring in the other sports. So Derek Thompson, I got involved. He was working for ITV at the time. Uh, probably the most professional person I've ever worked with. If you wanted 30 seconds, you got 30 seconds. And I remember a great story with him. I quickly found that we, we would sit and present, uh, but basically interact with the, uh, what was going on. Pictures were allowed in by this stage. And one race called Chepstow. Chepstow uh, is, is a very hard place to commentate if you're not there on the racing because especially on the jumps there's lots of uh, fences in the home straight I knew that he'd want to feed from the course but in his world he, he wants to do it all himself I think there's a danger to it and he got himself into a bit of a mess but he got out of it so professionally I'll tell you what happened they come into the straight the horse has gone clear 
and he's coming now down towards the third last and it's uh, uh, Coombs Ditch and he goes clear now, three to jump and they're coming down towards the second last. Now I knew there were three to jump so uh, I could see he was getting into trouble. As he comes now down towards the last, I put two fingers up at him, meaning there were two to jump, and he looked at me in horror. And then he says, and they jump the last now, and they're on the run in, racing up towards the line. What a horse this is. And then he quickly realised there was one to jump, and he said, and he's so good, he's even got a bonus jump. He's going to take the bonus jump. And he jumps the bonus jump, one for the show. And I thought, well, from that moment on, I thought that was so professional. I mean, it was ridiculous, but so professional. What I found was I learned quite a lot from working with people like him. And we could expand it to football. And I remember John Motson was very, very good to me. And Martin Tyler, they, you know, they, they, they would come on and do previews. We had Archie McPherson up in Scotland. We expanded it. And I remember a classic that really taught me about identification, the legendary Bill McLaren, one of my heroes. Well, I got uh, uh, approached him and said, we're doing this thing for rugby. We'd like to do uh, you know, something on the Six Nations. Would you up for it? He said, well, Angus, certainly. I'd love, I'd love, to, I'd love to be involved. So he agreed to meet me in the Edinburgh Airport Hotel. But the only trouble was, when I got to Edinburgh, there wasn't an airport hotel. So we, we ended up meeting in his car. And I got, I got the most amazing 40-minute piece with him about every country. But the only trouble was, he kept on calling me Hamish throughout the whole interview. Every answer is, well, Hamish, you know, England have got half a chance, but not nearly against Scotland. And everything was Hamish this and... So at the end, I said to, he said, how do you think it went? I said, well, apart from calling me Hamish, he said, well, you know what, son? He said, he said, unless you've got a number on the back of your shirt, I find identification and recognition very difficult. <laughs> and I always remember that, that. He was one of the great commentators. He picked up, he was, he was a particular man for identity, and he was a wordsmith of huge quality. But then, you know, like, he still had the recognition of the numbers 1 to 15. I don't know what it, he, They don't have the names on like they do now. And that, 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 that was an eye-opener. So I did the commentaries in Labra. It's the only firm I've been employed for. But I had the opportunities to experiment, meet people, go out, do things. And I, and I picked up some freelance work with an agency called Haters, who were really good to work with. They gave you a good grounding. They'd basically send you to a football match, give you a list of people that you had to work for. And then... Uh, uh, they do very well out of it, and you get a pittance for being paid. But you get uh, and for people who don't know the way that system works, then haters as a news agency will be supplying reports to well, numerous newspapers, yeah. maybe even a few radio stations. No, a lot of radio stations. And you're, and you're doing all of it. Yeah, I'm doing all of this. I get one fee, and, and I mean, you'd be in back. But the money would, would have been. It was important, but it was like extra pocket money. But you got a list, and suddenly I remember doing Wimbledon against Middlesbrough, a football match, for example, when the old Plough Lane, and I had to do radio tees, I had to do a, a, the Gazette in, uh, so they wanted a, but then not, not massive match reports, but enough to, that you had to, they wanted bias towards Middlesbrough on some things, bias towards Wimbledon, and you had a list of people you had to supply to, and a few Sunday papers, and obviously, it depends on if it was a good game, you had to supply more, you had to give goal alerts. And you know, in those days, it was the great days of CFAX and, uh, and Teletext. You had to ring CFAX with the goal and that type of thing. But it was all an experience. I then got a big opportunity. Funnily enough, it was uh, Derek who got me the, uh, Thompson who got me the opportunity to work for Eurosport. But he told me it was a programme on uh, dogs, and I thought it was greyhound racing. I turned up, it was the European Canine Championships, <laughs> which isn't quite the same thing. Which uh, you really have to think about when you when you commentate on huskies, 
it's not quite the same as uh, six dogs around Cradley Heath or Perry Bar. So what is it, some kind of cruft stipend? Well, event? it was, but it was in the Bursey Stadium in Paris, and it was quite a complicated programme, and I've got to be honest, I completely winged it, but got away with it. So they moved to Paris Eurosport, and the lady said, would you like to do a week of the news? So I said, well, that sounds great. So I took a week's holiday and went to Paris for a week. Great. So I then it became apparent that it, I could do that whichever week I wanted. So I handed my notice in, but went freelance. And that was in the early 90s, and I've been doing that ever since. But where I was lucky was that you go to a place like Eurosport, you, I mean, honestly, Adrian, you cannot... It was like car crash TV in the early, uh, in the early stages. I mean, we had, we had... Things happened that you just wouldn't believe. I remember one match, we did a Brazilian game. It had already taken place, but they said they'd replay it. So I said, fine, and we're doing it off-tube. Hadn't got a chance to see it before, commentate as live. So off tube again, you're yeah, just again, watching it off a television. Yeah, yeah uh, but not all the stuff we did was off tube, in fairness. So, but but this particular match was. I didn't feel comfortable about this. I really didn't. I didn't. Uh, something bugged me about it, and I didn't sleep well that night because I knew what I'd seen didn't didn't sit right. I don't know why. I just felt uncomfortable. Anyway, I read the match report in World Soccer two weeks later, and uh, it bad no, no resemblance to what I'd commentated on. You, know, you can't believe what they'd done, but they'd graphic it and everything. They'd put the, first, they'd put the second half on before the first half. <laughs> I should have sussed it. I, I should have sussed it because they, uh, I've never done a match which started under floodlights and finished in daylight. <laughs> but that, so that was my error of judgment, and I regret that. It, it, I, I should have. But we also had one other occasion where I did it live, and uh, from this moment I said, we have to have someone in the stadium if we're doing it live again. I did a, it was a UEFA Cup tie, but it was equivalent to the Europa League. It was a qualifier, and uh, the first half went well. I was with Jerry Armstrong, the ex-Northern Ireland international, and at half-time it was nil-nil. But we would then at half-time speak with other people. But up on the German uh, newswire, it was 1-0 to uh, uh, the Brennan. But I'd watched the match, and it was nil-nil. So I'm now very puzzled, but I made a couple of calls at half-time. You've only got, you've got to act quickly. It turned out that the camera was on a replay for a corner when the goal was scored and it never showed the pictures. So you have to make a decision at half-time. Do you tell the viewers there has been a goal, even though you can't show it them? Or do you change everything? So we, I said, well, you can't do the second half saying it's nil-nil when it's one-nil. So I, were you in the stadium for that game? No, I'm in the studio. So this is another off tube. I, I, I'm in Paris off tube, and, and after that, I decided that live off tube was I, unless I had someone in the stadium. It was a groundbreaking moment for Eurosport. Really, they realised they have to have someone in the stadium. So, How did you get out of that, by the way? Well, I, I actually, I actually said, well, we, we we did have a little incident in the first half that we were unable to show you, but it was one nil, and you know. But I mean, you've got to do the second half live. I ended up getting the job doing Eurogoals and I did uh, 360 consecutive Monday nights in Paris doing Eurogoals with a variety of different people and we had, a, we had a superb time but it led to the thing was it led to contacts and that was that was the thing people couldn't believe I mean I was able to get so many good football stories out of and European football I was into because we basically had the rights for Spain Portugal Holland Belgium France and so it was a good show, and we put it together on a Monday night, and I voiced it. But I met a Dutch chap there, and by pure chance, he said to me, uh, what sort of commentator do you do at home? I said, well, I do bits. But he said, well, would you be interested in coming to Holland on a Sunday and doing the Dutch League? So I ended up 
going to Holland. Again, it was in the early, I mean, they, for ESPN, the American network. I could take who I wanted, but I chose Gary Stevens. He used to play for Tottenham. Everton? Uh, 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 no, th- uh, that was a different Gary Stevens. There was a Gary Stevens from Everton. This was the Gary Stevens from Tottenham and Brighton. But funnily enough, I'll tell you a story about what he told me about. So he, he gets called up one weekend to play for England in Georgia in Tbilisi by Bobby Robson. It's his first match, so he's a substitute. So at half-time, Bobby said, you're on, son. So he thought that was good. So he saw his dad in the crowd. It was freezing in Tbilisi with raining. So he goes over and he, uh, Bobby comes up to him and says, right, son, I want you to attack the right back, put it, attack the two, put in some good crosses. And he thought, well, I'm a defender. What's he on about it? And then he said, good luck, Trevor. <laughs> Trevor Steven. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so he was also in the squad. So he was telling me, I mean, but anyway, he was quite knowledgeable about football. He now works in the Far East and I got on well with him. Ray Clements came over. But we, we had a fantastic job. Basically, we did a Dutch league game live every week. Now, this was, it started in the, in the mid-90s and it, it ended up with uh, Louis van Gaal was manager of Ajax. And that was the Ajax team that won the Champions League and got to the Champions League final in 96. And... I didn't really, I mean, I knew they were a good side and they really were, a pati- I mean, all the players went on to play in, in, in top flight, Littmann and I saw Burkamp live, I mean, he, he was destined to be a, a top class player over here. Littmann came to Liverpool too late, in my opinion, but there were lots of, uh, I mean, PSV had sensational players at that time, Romario and Ronaldo and in fact, I saw, I commentated on, in the stadium on uh, uh, 25 years ago in 94 on uh, Ronaldo's debut in Europe for PSV against Vitesse and I remember thinking straight away this guy is going to be the business little did I know that he'd top, be the top scorer in the World Cup in, uh, in 2002 but in answer to what you said it was just you need a bit of luck and in a way I was lucky because I got I made some good contacts in Europe and it's all about making contacts with other people and sometimes doing jobs that you don't necessarily want to do or get paid less just to see what the experience is and get a feel for what you what you would like to do. So that's well, maybe the lesson for an well, aspiring well, well, sports yeah, journalist. I mean, Don't be too sniffy. Yeah, it's quite good to specialise, but not necessarily specialise in football because you find that most people have got a good grounding in football. Where I was lucky as, as my career got going uh, later, I've always got the... the, the the passion for the for the football. I've been to loads of games in the eighties. I mean, that's the tragedy. Uh, I think now about the difference between now and when I was young. When I was young, without a disposable income, I could go to football matches. I could pay cash and I could go. I, I've watched a variety of football matches from right down the bottom. I used to follow Altrincham in the non-league. It was superb. And then I'd go to United. I'd go to City. I'd go to wherever I could get a ticket. But it wasn't expensive. I was looking back at the ticket prices. It was a pound for the standing or 50p. Or you could afford it. Now there's no there's no there's no chance the youngster. I mean I've, I've got a 12 year old son and you're looking at you, you take him on a day out and okay fine you you get the occasional match where it's good value. I mean the last days of the test matches were great value because there was massive discount. But you, even for the football match, I think considering how much money the clubs are getting, they, they, the, the ticket prices are too expensive. And for the youngsters, they should be giving tickets to school. There's no excuse for any empty seat in any of the big stadiums. And even when you go down to the championship, I mean, I noticed uh, your team, West Brom, had a good offer for the kids at the weekend. And I applaud that. And I think that you want to try and get them. But I think where they're missing the point is the youth. Because it, it's the, it, there seems to be nothing between 18 and 23. Like, there's a student rail card. Those are the people who are going to be the fans of the future. And those are the people that you want, you, you, you want to get. So sometimes you could make an issue or you make a point. 
But I was lucky that I went for the broadcasting side. So where did Stato come well, from? Well, funny I forgot to that. A chap called Andy Jacobs, who's now works for Talksport. Hawksby and Jacobs, yeah. Hawksby yeah. and Jacobs. I was doing quite a few of the uh, football commentaries in the stadium for, the, for, for their own fans. There was one company that had Tottenham, Southampton, uh, Portsmouth, Queen's Park Rangers, so I did them. And well, I also, the in-house the in commentary well, for, yeah, for, for uh, it, it was used for in the early stages of big screen. Sometimes they did away matches, but I got in with uh, Arsenal. I was doing Arsenal and Tottenham at one stage. It didn't matter really because you you were being biased towards them. So I remember I'm doing top. Tottenham Chelsea and this chap appears on the gantry called Andy Jacobs he must have known someone at Tottenham and I got quite friendly with him and then he, he said to me that they were doing a little uh, pilot with someone would I be interested in uh, coming down and meeting them so I said sure anything so I met up with uh, Frank and David and they ran up they, they originally had the idea they were going to use someone called the insider and he basically he was I mean he was it was hilarious he dressed up in a white sheet so no one could know his information, who he was and uh, they would uh, ask him about the week's inside news and I know who he was but I'm not going to reveal who he was but he was, a, he was a tabloid journalist at the time so he'd obviously be quite well informed but when I went to, the, to, to this pilot I could sense that it wasn't quite what they were looking for and when I met Frank and David I immediately got on with them and there was a bit, bit of a rapport and they could see that I had a keen interest in football and a good memory of uh, certain you know footballing events and we quite liked it and they had Jeff Astle involved anyway we did a pilot and then unbelievably it worked but I had a decision to make then and I, and that was probably I owe Simon Reid who was head of the commentating at, at Eurosport a, a big favour really because I said to him that I wanted to be a professional sports commentator I wanted to pursue that line I'd, I'd made an in I was getting it a break on certain things but I've been offered this thing what did he think I said it's going to be high profile but it is taking the mickey out of football which I'm not totally uncomfortable with because you've got a sense of humour but you had to be a little wary so I said I'm not uh, I'm not going to take it if you won't let me continue doing what I'm doing but if you let me continue what I'm doing I'll give you first it's not going to be too much it's only Friday nights and I've never worked for you on a Friday night yet so Obviously, if it comes with it's a conflict of interest, we'll take it on. But at this stage, they've only asked me to work on Fridays, and I've never worked for you on a Friday. So, and he said, "No, go for it. It could be good." So, suddenly, my work schedule became quite intense, and I had that on a Friday night. I had the Euro, Eurosport on the Monday. I had Holland on a, a, a Sunday. I was going to—I mean, the, the travelling became quite intense. But the stuff for the Americans was going very well. The Dutch football was good because mainly because the Ajax were doing well. They suddenly picked up the Champions League, and the next thing I knew, I was uh, every single week I was doing Champions League on site at every match. And How did Stato play out for you but, though? Because but, but what happened with Stato? It was quite interesting. It, it, it played out for me. The, you know, it's hit and miss. The, the first series was is only Friday nights, but it was all recorded. But it was quite popular. But it was a full day. You could tell it was being popular. But I think. It started off at the BBC, but I think ITV took a chance with it for the World Cup in 98 and the Euros in 96. And now those were a little different because they were live. Now, it's a risque programme with the guests live, but I could handle uh, having done the Eurosport work. And that's where I say that uh, you maybe do jobs that you don't necessarily want to, but you're put in a position where... I remember one time they asked me to do golf, uh, some golf highlights. So I did my research and I was in a bunker in Covent Garden and I remember it, there was a tournament players championship, an event I really like. I was happy to do it. It's like a 52-minute edit of the highlights. 
done at one in the morning, but they wanted it voiced live. I walked in, a button comes up, you hear a French announcer. I looked at it and suddenly I thought, what is going on here? And they put on last year's highlights, not last week's. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's the same golf course, but it's a different event. So all the research of the, the players I've got. But that type of experience, at the time you're cursing and you're shouting, and you're saying it's unprofessional, it shouldn't happen. But you know what, it actually is, it, 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 in hindsight, it's a good thing to, well, for when you're thrown on live TV, when things can go wrong, do go wrong, and can mischievously go wrong as well. I mean, Frank would take a chart. I mean, you know, I remember Bridget Nielsen. Uh, I mean, she was absolutely out of her head and she should have been taken out of the studio long before. You should never feed uh, someone, an alcoholic with plenty of uh, alcohol before they go on. I mean, she was, at, she was off, off the Richter scale. And I remember one time I, I was coming in on stilts. I came through and I knew it was going to fall. And I'm, I'm dressed, I mean, you know, it was ridiculous, really. But it's live TV. and it, 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 so what happened? Well, I fell over on the bookcase during the commercial break, and had, <laughs> uh, I've never seen the, uh, uh, the, the the people rush out so quickly. They, they had one minute 30 to replace all the books. Frank and David were laughing their head off. I didn't want to fall on the guests. I didn't really want to fall on them, so I went to the left and took the bookcase out. <laughs> but that sort of thing happens. I mean, but when you're live, I do remember the only time I've, I've, I've ever felt under real pressure was in uh, the night that England went out the World Cup to Argentina when they used to do a nice. Frank and David always used to like doing it, and, and I've seen it at the bumper. So they have the, the the match, and then it's news at ten. So just before news at ten, they have twenty seconds to trail the uh, the fancy football coming up live. But because England had got knocked out, and they were so grumpy and so beat, beat off, suddenly I'm sitting there and nothing said. Stato, you've got to do the trail. Say what you want. You've got 20 seconds. Right, we're coming to you in 10. And literally, I knew. And that would be the biggest audience. And that was an 18.9 million audience figure. But you've just got to think on your feet. I said, look, I look grumpy. I said, I know how you feel. I feel exactly how you feel. But I tell you, we've got to digest this. It's news at 10 now. Join us after the break. And, it went, and they actually loved it. And they came back and said, you couldn't have nailed it better. But it was like real seat on you. Did it change your life, though? Because obviously you were doing quite well, but the level of public recognition that went with that must have been transformative in some way. Uh, yeah, I mean, all I can say is, in a way, it would have totally changed my life if it had been in this generation. There wasn't any social media then. That would have been huge. I, tell you, I mean, I was, I was only saying something uh, somebody the other day, because for me, it's interesting. It's an alcohol recognition factor. No one ever comes up to me during the day, but when, when it's lads who've been at football or from travelling in the football and they've had a drink, yes. And then I got a break, I got a break to be involved with the BBC horse racing, which was something that was a real thrill for me. Claire Balding asked me to be part of the team that she was involved in. And for 10 years, I worked on uh, mainstream horse racing covering what was going on in the betting ring. It's amazing how one thing can lead to another. Suddenly you do a bit of mainstream TV, then suddenly a paper says, do you want to write a column? And I had a column in, in, in a Birmingham paper, had a column in Manchester paper, and then got, did something in a mirror in The Guardian, and then got my own column in The Telegraph, which was a big break for me. That was a paper I read, and I'd always fancied writing for them, and I wasn't having to do too much live stuff. But occasionally, because I was on the Champions League, I'd end up doing a, a live football match for them. Or if no one was there, I'd offer it to them, and you know they'd take it. So I got a good. I, I, I got the night that uh, Milan were champions of Europe. Uh, they were away to. Dep I did both games of the match uh, against Deportivo, 
and they, they were winning 4-0 in the first leg, should have been 6-0. Missed a penalty and Deportivo got a late goal and it's 4-1. But they're still massive favourites. I went to La Coruña, the 3-0 down at half-time and they went out. Now, I remember, spoke to the guy at half-time and he said to me, we've got a choice, you can either do 200 words down the side or the whole of the front page. I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I think if Milan goes out, there's no one else here, I think you should do the whole of the front page of the sport. But I'm going to need some help because if you want it on the whistle, I'm commentating. And, uh, uh, but I can, I can top and tail it and we can feed it. As, so, so I got the whole front page of the sport off a night that they got knocked out. So that was journalistically a good... And then I remember being in... I, I follow golf very closely and I went out... One of my favourite events is Dubai, the Dubai uh, golf. But I went to Doral in America and it clashed with Dubai, so there was no one else there. And it turned out being an unbelievable event with Woods and Mickelson going head to head. So I rang the paper and I said, look, no one else is here. I'm, 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 I'm okay Sunday night to work for you if you want. You have it to yourself. I, you, won't get a, you won't get a better golf story all year. And I spoke to the golf correspondent who was in Dubai, Louine, who was great about it. She said, you must do it, it's, it's superb. So we were the only people who had that. So I took great pride out of that night. But I'll never forget, I met the chap from, uh, from Ford. They looked after Phil Mickelson and uh, Tiger Woods is sponsored by Buick. So he said, oh, it's going to be a great day tomorrow. It's, the two, two, it, it's Buick versus Ford. I said, it's Mickelson against Woods. I mean, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I said, well, I said, I know who you'll be cheering for. He said, you don't. I said, well, you must be cheering for Ford. I mean, he's your man. He said, no, no, we're cheering for Buick because we know if Tiger wins, Tiger defends, and then we can market Buick v Ford 2. What an event that would be. So I suddenly thought, I, th- I thought, well, commercialism, it, 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 it was a new thing. But working for an American network, I mean, was, is interesting because you, because you do see it from a different angle. Everything is commercial. You can see why NFL work and you can see why soccer doesn't. Although I've got to say NBC are doing a tremendous job for uh, soccer in the States now. And I think that the World Cup in uh, six years' time in America will be taken to a completely new, new level. Obviously, you've been in this game now a long time, Angus. What are the key changes that you've seen and that if a young aspiring sports journalist was listening to you, that you would say perhaps different now than when you were starting? Social media, 100%. If I tell you, Adrian, it's quite interesting that the internet for me, the first job I remember that I had access to anything digital, electronic, was watching when I was starting. We had something at Eurosport called Intranet. Uh, We used it for the Olympics in 92 and 94. But the real uh, first job that any form of internet was in, used was Euro 96 and I was heavily involved in that in fact I did a, a, a something for Microsoft with uh, Graham Lasso and Chris Evans we used to uh, and it, we, it was like not quite a podcast but it would be like it was virtually sort of uh, people would call in but so you're talking about tw- 23 years that's all it's been prior to 96 it was a completely different journal I mean it's almost like it's a bugbear to me, and I can understand why, but there's, there's so many people now who think football was invented in 92 when the Premier League came in. So the two things are parallel. The Premier League came in at the time when we started to have the World Wide Web and we eventually had social media. The trouble is now, there's a lot of young people who, who, who want to undercut or to get their way in. There's a dangerous precedent you can do that. I'd always think about what... You, uh, that you have a value for what you're providing. 
if you, if you say your work for nothing, that's a dangerous precedent to set. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily uh, evolve on that, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that way. If you're doing a job, you've got to be paid for it. But if you, if you can offer some research, and that's completely different. But if you do a job that's published or aired, you should be paid for it. And, and, and I mean, you can, do, you can do running around, you can do other jobs. I mean, I was very, very uh, lucky that Gary Newborn in the Midlands gave me a break at Central Television work experience for a week. It was quite funny because he said to me, took me out, he said, I'd like to get to know you a bit, tell me a bit about your, your family. I said, well, my dad's a conductor. And he said, what, West Midlands Transport? <laughs> he thought he was a bus conductor. As it, as it turns out, he's a musical conductor and uh, he was quite high profile. But it'd be typical Gary. But I had the grounding there from Gary Newborn and Jeff Farmer. Now, Jeff Farmer, who passed away uh, last year, was a proper journalist. I mean, you did like him. He was a Baggies fanatic. He, uh, he used to write for the Express yeah, and Star and, newspaper and, and, in the West. And he, and, he, and he always told me how they, they, he, he got great stories. He got, the, he got the Brian Clough resignation story by Pure Child. But he, he built up a relationship with Brian Clough. I think a lot of it, a lot of it now is that if you, you can specialise or you can pick other sports. It's all about trust. And it's about building and bonding and getting a relationship. I mean, I've got a very good contact book, but it's not by accident because I've worked at building a relationship. And you've got to respect what off the record is. I've been told stories that uh, would blow your mind out, but they'll, they'll be taken to my grave because they were off the record. But sometimes you can get information that's not off the record, and then you're in a very strong position because you know you trust your source. If you trust your source, the stories will come to you. The, uh, travel, meet people, always listen. I mean, I'll never forget... Caroline O'Hearn, the late Caroline O'Hearn, who was on Mrs. Merton, got quite friendly with her and uh, she was going through a stage of depression and being down. So we go out to a fish and chip restaurant in Notting Hill called Geals. It's fantastic. I loved it. I was fascinated by it because I liked it because the prices changed when the, the chips went. The chips was the same, but the fish went up and the fish went down. So we're sitting there one, one night and she's, she's got a job interview on Monday. I said, well, you'll be fine. You'll get the job easy. You'll have no problem. No, nah, no. Nah. She, she said, I haven't got the experience. I said, Caroline, don't you? And she was very down at the time. So then the waitress came up at the end. We paid the bill. And she said, oh, darling, I couldn't help but overhearing your conversation. Uh, she said, if you're really desperate for a job, I'm looking for a cleaner. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. And then we smiled afterwards. Anyway, she's doing some programme a few months later and she sends me a message. She said, Angus, make sure you watch this, you'll love it. And so they're doing a sketch and she used that story. She always told me, she said, the best way of getting new and fresh material is the truth and it's listening and you can always learn by listening. And I like to listen to people. You know, obviously if you're commentating, you've got to say most, but I like to listen and learn and it's amazing you never know where you might pick stuff up from. And if you've got a good retentive memory, keep your records, keep your notes, and keep a diary. Because if you keep a diary, you'll come back to it. So I think that that's helpful. And I like to specialise, and above all, I like to do my homework. Angus, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Angus Lockery.